Lord God, um, we thank you for characters in the Bible like Ezra, who you brought along right at the right time. And uh, we pray that as we helicopter drop ourselves into this part of the Bible, which we may not be familiar with, that you help us to understand it and also be inspired by how um, amazing you are and how, um, how profound your power is to change people, to change us, to, to change whole cities. Um, so we pray for this in your name. Amen. Amen. If you think back to when you were at uni, um, which for some of you is right now, you'll remember driving the beaten up old car. So um, I had a, well, I had a Kingswood, 1972 Kingswood, which wasn't too beaten up. But then later on, I had a, a bubble back 1986 uh, powder blue laser, which was a sight to behold. And um, <clears throat> one of the great things that can happen when you um, have your beaten up old car is that somebody can smash into you, not too badly, just a little bit, enough so that they have to pay for the insurance and you get your car back looking a lot better than before. Uh, the same sort of thing can happen when you drop your iPhone or somebody breaks it or something and then you take it to the shop and they say, well, we can't really fix it, so here, have an upgrade and they just give you a new one. And it's like, yes! Um, the whole experience of having an upgrade is a really... Um, satisfying experience and we try and do it as people as well so um, if you think back to um, you know times in your life when you've tried to change who you are um, you know enrolling in a new university course can give you a bit of a change in identity um, and, and it's like a step forward or uh, maybe you start on a fitness campaign I went through several identity changes in high school I started off as um, I remember a point I was the oily haired musician who sort of walked around listening to hippie music from the 70s and stuff. Um, and then in year 12, I went through this phase of being the clean-cut vice-captain of the school and I was all you know, official and stuff. But then as soon as I left, I was back to being a new, a new identity at uni. I was the, the black skivvy-wearing European classical musician. That's right. That's right. Um, but what if you could get um, a, a change to your inner self? What if that could really happen to the core of who you are? That would certainly be something that you would, you would actually embrace. Surely we all know that deep inside of us there's a part of us that wants to change and that if, if, if it could be transformed and made even better, we'd go for that. A new purpose, a new sense of who we are, a new sense of satisfaction, a new sense of love in our heart. This morning, um, as you probably guessed from the reading, we're going to... Look at the book of Ezra. You know, when you're the minister, sometimes you do self-indulgent things. Here's an example. Um, when your son's called Ezra. And I thought, let's look at the book of Ezra and look at how amazing the story is of how God rebuilds the whole people of Israel. But also how we get a glimpse into how he can actually use that same power and agenda to rebuild us as individuals. Joe and I came to the name Ezra in a kind of a roundabout way. I, um, we, we got, it was a lot harder the second time around because we sort of were so comfortable with the whole process. We sort of left it to the last minute. And I put forward the usual names that I knew would never get accepted like Woody or Bob or Joni or Diane or Mia. You know who I'm referring to if you know who I am. But um, of course none of those were ever going to get through. Jelly Roll never got through. Um, Dizzy never got through. We did get Ezzy in the end, though, didn't we? 
And um, we then decided we wanted a Jewish name because we liked the sound of Jewish names, but we didn't want Melchizedek or Berubabel or... There's some funny ones out there. And it makes you sound like you're, you're, you're an African-American or a rabbi. So we're neither of those things, are we? So anyway, we got eventually to Ezra because we like the sound of it and it's, it's kind of nice. Um, and then it just got us thinking, you know, we, we really should really understand that book of Ezra if we're going to call our son Ezra. So um, having looked at that book, it's just a profound story. A bit of background to the book of Ezra. It comes right at the end of the history of the Old Testament. So if you think about about 1,500 years of history, right at the very end, around the 5th century BC, you get this character, this priest who emerges called Ezra and this book called Ezra. And also there's another book, Nehemiah, the shortest man in the Bible, Nehemiah, sorry, um, which comes next to it. Um, I had to use that joke anyway. I've never used it before in in public. Um, So Nehemiah and Ezra go together, and you can read about Ezra in Nehemiah as well. So they come at the end of this period, and what's happened is um, is, is Israel had been, um, for about 80 years, uh, in exile. They'd been slaves in the land of um, Babylon, or it's also called Persia. Um, And so for about... 80 or 100 years, they were basically forced to leave their land and to be slaves and to not, it was hard to practice their religion. They were in a context where speaking a different language and what happens over time when when you're displaced like that is it can get to the point where you sort of forget how to be who you are. You have a kind of an identity crisis and many of them had experienced that but some of them had experienced a more kind of a... um, They'd held on to their faith and they'd, and, and they'd really tried to keep it going through that difficult time. And so when you, start, when you open up to the book of Ezra, you get to this point where there's this new king, King Cyrus, who actually, the king of Persia, who actually is a good king and he has this vision. Um, so what I want to do is try to just give you three anecdotes from the story of Ezra. I can't go through the whole thing, obviously, be here all, all morning, but just to show you how Profound God's power is to rebuild a city and also uh, you as a person. So King Cyrus, what happens is God says to him, I want you to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. I want you to organise for people, the Israelites, to be set free and for some of them to go and to um, rebuild this temple. And so he does it. He, he, he responds in obedience and he announces, this is what's going to happen, everyone. We've come to a new point in our history in the, in the Babylonian Empire, and we're going to allow you to go free. This was a great act of justice. Not only that, but when you go, I want you to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which is a profound symbol of their identity, of who they are as Jewish people, because in the temple, um, it's how they do their worship. And not only that, but the King Cyrus said, I'm going to take all the treasure that King Nebuchadnezzar stole from from your temple, and I'm going to give it back to you. So this was like this was like a great point of healing for the Babylonian Empire. This is like their their sorry moment, you know, the Kevin Rudd sorry moment. It's like the whole nation is like saying, as a symbolic gesture, we're going to let you go and give you back your jewels and your gold and bless you. Very significant. And so some of the Israelites say, yes, I want to do this. I want to I want to embrace this, and they go and they do it. Now, this, this process took many years. You can imagine build, rebuilding a temple is not an easy thing to do. It took many years and they experienced some opposition, but several kings came and went. And eventually, um, 
you see in the book of Ezra, another king, King Darius, appears and he continues the process and allows them to keep building. Now, just pause there for a second. You might be thinking, oh man, this happened supposedly two and a half thousand years ago and it, it just seems like, you know, out of the Lord of the Rings or something. It doesn't seem that um, believable. But you know what? The most amazing thing, you can go right now, if you go to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, you can actually stand in a reconstruction of Nebuchadnezzar's palace with the actual tiles and the actual statues from the actual Nebuchadnezzar, the, that Nebuchadnezzar that originally ransacked the Jewish temple. You can go across uh, the ocean to the Louvre Museum in Paris. You can stand in King Darius's, uh, amongst King Darius's treasure as well, um, the, the, the kind of the reliefs on the wall and the, and the statues as well. And I'm just saying that to, to, to remind us that this is real history, you know, and people love reading this stuff in the Bible because they can locate it in actual, with real objects, you know, that you can actually touch and, and see that for real. Anyway, I just thought I'd say that as a kind of a, an aside. Now, why is the rebuilding of the temple so important? If you remember back to that great um, 19, late 1970s film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, you remember that um, in the story, they're trying to get the ark because, as Harrison Ford explains, the Jewish people believed that um, God was present, the power of God was present in the ark, and that whichever army, the Nazis or the, the Allies, if they, whoever got the ark first would win the war. That's how the film goes. Now, obviously, that's kind of a Hollywood sort of version of, the, of events. But it's based on um, truth from the Old Testament. So what, what it's, what, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see um, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, um, they put it in this ark, not the Noah's ark, but like this thing that you carried around. And wherever Israel went, they carried the ark. And that was symbolic of God's presence being with them. And eventually, God told them to build a temple, put the ark in the middle, and that would be where God's presence was. So for the Israelite people, it was crucial to have a temple because... That was symbolic of where God's presence was. And they couldn't do their worship, they couldn't do their religion without this temple. So going to build it again was so significant for them. This, this was, you know, the most important thing they'd ever been involved in. Now, here we get to the crunch of what we learn from Ezra. Because what we read in the early chapters, the first sort of six chapters of Ezra, is that they finish the temple... But then they keep building again. They keep building the whole of Jerusalem. And it's like there's this big kind of sense in which we're not going to just stop at the temple. God is with us. We're going to rebuild the whole city. And then eventually they put this wall up around the whole city. And what they're saying is, is that we believe God is with us, not just in the temple, but in the whole of the city. And a trajectory is started off there in the Bible which says that God isn't just present in the temple, but he's, he's actually present everywhere. And you see them doing their worship again in the book. You can read in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're, they're worshipping in their homes, and, and uh, this is a significant time in history. The, the point here is that what I'm saying is that um, when we look at the book of Ezra, we see this transition from God being present in the temple to the whole city, and we're to remember that God is present everywhere. He's not just present in a church building. He's not just pre present in a religious place. He's not just present when people um, talk religiously, but he's present everywhere. And so, in the same way that the temple was rebuilt and that the city was rebuilt and that God initiated all of that, he can also rebuild us and he can give us a fresh new start in the same way that the city experienced that fresh new start. 
But where do you begin? Well, we've just learnt that God's presence isn't just located in a religious building. So if you want to pray, for example, you can do it anywhere. You can pray anywhere. You can pray in your home, going for a walk, or standing on a mountaintop, or at the beach. I know some people pray on the toilet. Embarrassing, but God is present everywhere. (laughs) The point is, the the first lesson from the book of Ezra, that God's presence is moving beyond religious buildings to everywhere, that's a trajectory that goes on for the whole Bible. And, And as you keep reading into the New Testament, you see that that continues. The church carries the presence of God out and the Holy Spirit is unleashed on the whole world. So you can pray while you're driving your car. You can pray with a friend. You can pray while you're listening to music. And you can, when you start to pray, you will see, you'll experience God rebuilding you over time. That's one of the things that happens in prayer. I'll, I'll read it from a, a, a really good book on prayer that's just come out. This author writes, Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he, is, he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. Think about it. In this era of individualism and self-obsession, one of the best, best things about prayer is that it gives us a relief from that burden of self-absorption. It makes us, it makes us other person-centred. You should try praying. So what have we just learned from the book of Ezra? In, in the same way that God sent the Israelites back to Jerusalem, to their land, to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, that same power um, can rebuild us. And in the same way that God's presence is seen to go beyond the temple to the whole city, we, we can know from the Bible that God is actually present everywhere. And when we pray, we can experience... God rebuilding, rebuilding us. There's another thing we see in the book of Ezra, though, and that is the way um, the, the people of Israel shift from a kind of a religion that's based on elite spiritual leaders to being on a kind of a religion based on the community. So the Old Testament specialised in these charismatic figures, these leaders of Israel like Abraham and Moses and David. And uh, when Ezra comes along, uh, in chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. Um, he, he's a kind of an important figure, but he's not that important. And actually what you see is he gets absorbed back into the community. And um, if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you get lots of long lists of people. So, you know, you get, here are the list of people who went back to Jerusalem. Here are the list of people that helped build, rebuild the temple. Here are the list of people who were the priests and from the tribe of Levi. Here are the list of people do, that did this and that. And what the emphasis is on now is the community not the elite spiritual leader. This is a massive shift. It's, it's a community of people who are, are involved in rebuilding this, this, this city and this temple. It seemed, seems a strange thing for the Bible to include all of this, but it's making a point that God is working through the community. If there's one thing that's true for me and for most of the people I know around this part of Melbourne, and, and that is that we, if we're going to get involved in faith, many people don't want to have anything to do with religion. You want it to be a religion of the people, don't you? You, you don't want it to be... You want to, we're, we're, nobody wants to be part of some kind of religion where there's a kind of a, an authoritarian guru overpowering you, telling you how to live your life. I mean, some people do, but people around here don't seem to want to. 
people like Pope Francis, I guess. He's kind of the, the first pope in a long while where non-Catholics really love, love Pope Francis. And the reason I think they love him is because he seems to be a pope for the people, isn't he? He seems like one of us. He, he gets out there and he, and he prays with people you know, in the street and the homeless people. And I, I, I think kind of he's, he's almost reacting against um, that appearance of himself as an emperor like some other popes have done in the past. You see it in the Pentecostal church as well, the kind of silky suits and the kind of sharp haircuts and the alpha male leader. And you see it in the Anglican church with the mitres and, and that kind of that presence of the authority. But people don't want that. People want community-based faith, don't we? We want to encourage each other. We want to kind of be here um, supporting each other in our faith. Well, that is a kind of religion, to use that word, um, that we see emerging in Ezra. Now, you might be saying, thinking to yourself, what about Jesus? Isn't he kind of an elite spiritual leader? Well, yes, of course he is. But in a funny kind of way, he backs away from it, doesn't he? He surrounds himself with the 12 apostles and then he surrounds himself with the disciples. He sends out 72 disciples and he's only doing it for three years. I mean, he could have done a Queen Elizabeth II and gone on for 60 years or something if he wanted to. Um, but he, he doesn't kind of um, try and set up a big kind of empire in that respect, but he sets up a grassroots movement. And so we see the church emerge. What do they, what do they emerge as? An underground church. They're a community-based faith. So God rebuilt Israel and turned them into a community-based religion. If you want God to rebuild you, you don't need an elite spiritual guru to help you, but you do need a community of people. And that's what churches are for. And so our church here at Mary Creek is only new. We're coming up to our first anniversary in a few weeks. But one of the reasons we exist is to support each other in our faith. One of the big myths that some people believe is that faith should be private, but that's actually not true. Faith should not be private. It should be public. You should be sharing it with each other. You might um, have read, I wrote a blog article a few months ago called... Um, religious but not spiritual and I was talking about all the people who say I'm spiritual there are lots of people who say I'm spiritual but not religious but then I was looking at people who say I'm religious but not spiritual which is a concern but um, you know you might be a person who says that you're spiritual but not religious but let me um, read to you a bit from um, this uh, author uh, Lillian Daniel who wrote an essay for the Huffington Post and then wrote a book about it and she was criticising this idea of spiritual but not religious. And she said, spirituality fits too easily with individualism, hedonism and complacency. So in an attempt to woo back um, spiritual but not religious people, she writes this book and she makes the case for organised religion. And she says, there is nothing challenging about having deep thoughts about, about God all by oneself. What is interesting is doing this work in community where other people might call you on stuff or, heaven forbid, dis disagree with you. Where life with God gets rich and provocative is... Oh, sorry, where, where life with God gets rich and provocative is when you dig into a tradition that you did not invent all by yourself. And there's a Jesuit priest as well, um, James Martin, who, who says that the um, problem is the idea of saying you're spiritual but not religious, is that it assumes that faith is just between you and God, um, that there is no one else who can speak into your situation or to challenge you if you go off track. And he, he says, religion checks my tendency to think that I am the centre of the universe, 
that I have all the answers, that I know better than anyone about God and that God speaks most clearly through me. But religious community corrects our naive individualism. God communicates through the group as well as the individual. So what have we learned from Ezra? If you want God to rebuild you, remember that you can pray anywhere because God's everywhere and you should join a church community because that's the kind of faith that God has set up. And lastly, what we see happen in the book of Ezra, and I bet you there's Christians in this room who've been Christians their whole life and reading the Bible never knew this, but um, we see a transition in the story of Ezra from the Jewish religion being an oral-based tradition to being a text-based religion, a spirituality, spirituality, spirituality based on the written down word. So, and, and tradition says that it was Ezra himself who closed the canon of the Old Testament. So all the books that are in the Old Testament, there were lots of little books here and there. It was Ezra who closed that off. And if you read through, especially in the book of Nehemiah, you see uh, Ezra being invited by the people to teach them and to read from the scripture. So in Nehemiah 8 it says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the teacher of the Lord, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up, and Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Bible reading became a much bigger part of faith life, not just recounting the stories from memory, but reading it from the written down text. So as Christians, we believe the Bible is God's inspired word, and this means we believe God inspired the authors, and he inspires us, the readers. It's our way of hearing from God. It's more than just a book, but it's food for the soul. In the Dostoevsky book, The Brothers Karamazov, one of the characters says, The people are lost without the word of God, for their soul is a thirst for the word and for all that is good. I first experienced that thirst for the word in year 12 when I did a subject in VCE called Texts and Traditions, uh, which is basically a literature subject where the Bible is the book that you study. And um, I remember I'd read the Bible all my life and heard it at church, but this time I really had to know it for the exam. And I remember sitting there on one sort of lazy afternoon in class at Ivanhoe Grammar and, and having like a kind of a divine experience as I was studying, you know. And um, it was like the pe- a penny drop experience. You know, I I'd, I'd like had the penny drop in my head or in my heart. And it was an aha moment in class. It was as if God's spirit and my spirit were kind of working together in a new kind of way. Uh, that's what happens when you re- read the Bible God's spirit works inside of you to change you. I've seen this happen to other people too. I've had Bible studies that I've led. There was this Bible study I led for, for years where a, a friend of mine um, was in, the, in it and he came along. He was a, not a Christian, but he came along with his girlfriend and he'd sat in the Bible study for many, a few years and over time he just kept listening and reading and over time he started believing and there was a change that happened in him and he's still a Christian today many years later. See, God rebuilt Israel by making it into a people based on his written word. If you want to be rebuilt by God, I I recommend you to open the Bible and have a read of it. If you haven't got one, download one of the many free Bible apps. They're everywhere on on all your devices. 
If you don't know where to begin, I'd say read the Gospel of Mark. And also talk to someone. Read the Bible with someone else. And as you read the Bible, you will find it lifts your soul. It inspires you. It challenges you. And most amazingly, it changes you. And you will find your heart changes to love the things that God loves. And you will also be angry about the things that God gets angry about. You'll be this new kind of person. You'll have that inner soul of your heart rebuilt. So what have we learned? The same God who created you also wants to recreate you. At the end of the story in the Bible, it talks about God recreating the universe. But he wants to begin that process in you now. So if you want God to rebuild you as he rebuilt Israel in the time of Ezra, then join a church community, start praying in any place at home or at work, Read the Bible and see what happens. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all the trajectories you set in the time of Ezra, 500 years before Jesus came. And thank you for the fact that you're still working today and you still want to rebuild all of us and that your spirit is available to us all. We pray for that advice that we see, that that those lessons we learn from the story of Israel. We pray that we can implement them in our lives. Amen.